You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. One of the things I really enjoy about the Christmas season uh, are just a lot of the Christmas carols that we sing, especially uh, the, the religious Christmas carols that we sing that really kind of speak of uh, the birth of Christ. I also find it interesting uh, some of the stories that motivated uh, composers to write what they wrote because really no song, whether it's a religious or non-religious, no song is ever really written in a vacuum. Someone doesn't just decide, oh, I'm going to sit down and write a song and write it. It's always motivated by some experience um, in life. And you just saw that in the video there uh, explaining how the Christmas carol Silent Night came to be. For instance, the song Joy to the World uh, was written by Isaac Watts in the early 1700s. And Watts was an English um, minister and writer who had a gripe and a complaint with really kind of the lack of joy and emotion that congregants um, had in worship services. And so he kind of went and he had complained about this to his father. And his father told him, if you struggle so much with the way people are singing, you ought to do something about it. And so he did. And he, and he writes this song, Joy to the World, and it's based off of Psalm 98. Uh, the version that we're familiar with today is actually the second half of Watts's poem, and it's set to music. Now, interestingly, it's one of the more unusual Christmas carols because it doesn't really focus and it's not really speaking about the birth of Christ. Rather, it focuses on Christ's second coming, which hasn't happened yet. And most people don't realize this because we mainly sing this during the Christmas season. And so a lot of times we're just left to assume that this joy to the world is the birth of Christ. And it's really not. And that's where it says, joy to the world, uh, let earth receive her king. Um, and that's where those references, so if you really go through and, and read and look at the song, Joy to the World, you'll find many, many references to his second coming. Uh, some of the greatest hymns uh, ever written uh, were written by Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, who's a founder of Methodism. And during Charles' lifetime, he wrote over six hundred hymns. Now again, one of his more famous uh, hymns is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which many theologians say it is the entire gospel message packed into one song. And it's true. If you just go through and read that, again, it's the entire gospel message. As a matter of fact, many of Charles Wesley's hymns and carols, uh, they were just packed with theology because it was one of the ways, uh, and effective ways at that time, that they taught theology. And they would just kind of take the truths of Scripture, and then they would put that into a very familiar tune, often bar tunes, believe it or not, but they would take that theology and they would, would link that up and, and write that into tunes that the people were familiar with, and that's how they taught biblical theology back then, because a lot of people were, were illiterate, didn't know how to read. Uh, the melody for this um, 
familiar carol uh, was composed by the famous uh, Felix uh, Mendelssohn, and it was almost a hundred years after Wesley wrote the text. And so how did those words of Wesley and the music of Mendelssohn come together? Uh, the little known fact is that neither Charles Wesley nor Felix Mendelssohn would have wanted their music to be joined uh, in this way. Felix Mendelssohn, he was a Jewish composer, and he made it very, very clear that he only wanted the music he composed to be used with secular songs. Charles Wesley, on the other hand, um, said he only wanted slow and solemn religious music to be linked uh, with his words. However, in the mid-19th century, long after Mendelssohn and uh, Wesley were deceased, an organist by the name of Dr. Williams Cummings, he joined that, that, uh, that joyous tune that Mendelssohn wrote to the solemn words that Wesley wrote, um, and we have that Christmas carol today that we know and love. A lot of us are very, very familiar with the beautiful song. We've sung this. Uh, we'll probably sing it again on Christmas Eve. It's that uh, the Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. Now, this carol was written by Adolf Charles Adam. He was a French composer. Now, surprisingly, it was originally frowned upon, and it was rejected by church authorities who deemed the hymn for its poor taste, its lack of joy, and what they called a total absence of the spirit of religion. Can you believe that? In the first stanza, the writer, he kind of invites us to kind of close our eyes and imagine the world before Jesus is born. And he describes a world that lay in sin and error pining. Now that word pining refers to the wasting away of the human spirit as it grieves and endures pain. In other words, he's kind of painting a picture of a world that is kind of lost in darkness without light, a world in deep deep despair that trapped in sin and without hope. But as you sing that carol, there comes these three amazing words. Till he appeared. Till he appeared. When Jesus appeared, when Christ was born over 2,000 years ago, there in the, that major, there in Bethlehem, everything changed. And the Christmas carol goes on to proclaim, and the soul felt its worth. The soul realized through the birth of Christ its immense value to God. As a matter of fact, when Jesus Christ was born, time was changed and split into two. B.C. indicated the history of time before the birth of Christ, A.D. representing the history of time following his miraculous birth. No other person in history can make that claim. This is exactly what God intended to do when Christ was born, to bring profound change. And it's why we celebrate Christmas. When Jesus appeared over 2,000 years ago, there in that lowly stable in Bethlehem, it was for one purpose, to change everything. 
At no time of the year are we more reminded of just how much Jesus has changed the world than at Christmas. And the Bible records many of the changes the birth of Christ ushered into humanity. Interestingly, when the Apostle Paul writes about the Christmas story, unlike the Gospel writers, Paul doesn't tell us about the birth of Jesus. Paul rather tells us about the glory of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul shares with us the glory of Christmas. And he tells us why the night on which Jesus was born was such a holy night. Listen to these words there that Paul writes in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now from this passage of scripture we can find at least three ways Christmas, the birth of Christ, changed the world. The first way Christmas changed the world is God took on human flesh and became a man. You will never, ever, ever understand Christmas apart from this. This is what Christmas is all about. God taking on human flesh and becoming a man. Did you know that there are no other recorded births in the Bible after the birth of Jesus? Do you know the last genealogy was the genealogy, the lineage uh, of Jesus? There's no other family, there's no other lineage past the lineage of Jesus. Why is that? Well, because the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, it pointed to the anticipated, the prophesied birth and coming of a deliverer, the Messiah, the one who would save mankind from their sins, Jesus Christ. Now, the New Testament provides two accounts of the genealogy of Jesus, one in the Gospel of Matthew and the other in the Gospel of Luke. Now, what's interesting is Matthew, he kind of starts with Abraham and works forward, while Luke kind of writes, he begins with Jesus and then works his way back to Adam. And both Gospels of Matthew and Luke provide genealogies of Jesus that confirm he was a direct descendant of the um, King David, and therefore was the legitimate promised Messiah. And once that was established, no other genealogies were necessary. And so Paul, he doesn't give us really any details about Jesus's physical birth. He kind of leaves that to Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke look at the birth of Jesus, while Paul looks at it theologically. 
In Matthew and Luke, you see the historical birth of, of Jesus, but Paul gives us the theological truth of his birth. And that's why there in verse 6, Paul kind of, he kind of pulls back the curtain of eternity and he kind of shows us what took place before Jesus was born. And there he says, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, interestingly, that Greek word for equal is the word um, isos. And an isosceles triangle is a triangle with two equal sides. And the word means equal in size, quality, character, and number. And what that tells us is that in every way, Jesus Christ was and is God from eternity to eternity. As a matter of fact, there was never a time throughout all eternity that Jesus Christ was not fully God. John chapter 1 verse 2 says that Jesus was in the beginning with God. And the beginning that John's referencing there is uh, the beginning as stated in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that beginning, John says, Jesus existed there in the beginning with God. So before there was ever a beginning, Jesus existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And the glory, the celebration, the announcement of Christmas is the announcement that God took on flesh and came among us and lived as a human being. That is just so profound to me. And it's what leads Paul to go on and to write in other places like Colossians 1.15. He says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9 says, for in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. That again, that's the theology of Christmas. Another way of stating this is when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. When you hear Jesus, you're, you're hearing God. When you obey Jesus, you're obeying God. When you worship Jesus, you are worshiping God. Now that word form there in Colossians 2.9, it's a word that kind of referred to a Roman stamp. Now in, in biblical days as Paul's writing this, and a government's official document would be sealed uh, with wax while the wax was hot. And so they would take the letter and they would drip wax on there. And then the, the, uh, the Roman official then would take his ring with the insignia and he would press that down onto the hot wax. Um, and it was the way that he would uh, again give the exact representation of his insignia there in that uh, hot wax. And what Paul is telling us when he uses that word form there is he's telling us that Jesus is the full exact representation of God. And Paul makes this amazing uh, theological observation and, and he says that Jesus willingly laid aside his glory and he took on the form of a bondservant, a slave, when he took on human flesh. Not a sultan, but a servant, a slave. And Paul says, and while he did that, 
he never ceased to be God. There have been whole books written just on that one verse of scripture, trying again to understand the, the, the majesty of what God did in Christ coming among us as a man. And when Jesus became a man, when God took on flesh, there was no subtraction. Jesus remained God in all his fullness, but now contained that same fullness in human form. If you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, remember Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's transfigured before him. And it just says basically that that glory, the glory of God that was in Jesus, that, that, that just momentarily kind of broke through human flesh. And the disciples witnessed that. They saw the glory of God momentarily in Jesus, but that was shrouded in, in flesh. Again, it's just a reminder that though he was man, he was still fully God. So there's no subtraction. Nothing was lost when Jesus became man. Nor was there division. Jesus did not give up any of his Godhead to make room for his manhood. Jesus was not part human, part divine. He was not a mixture of God and man. His deity was not humanized and his humanity was not deified. Instead, Jesus was fully 100% God, fully 100% man throughout his earthly life, from the moment he was born, right through his crucifixion, his resurrection, when he ascended back to the Father, even now, as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus continues to be fully God and fully man, and he will be so forevermore. As a matter of fact, when, when we see Jesus, we will see Jesus in his resurrected, glorified um, body. Now, what happened when Jesus became man was not subtraction, it was not division, but addition. Jesus took upon himself human nature, which he had never before possessed, and he added humanity to his deity. And from then on, he remained both God and man, two natures in one person. And again, when we see Jesus, we will see him in his fullness as fully both God and fully Man, And that's where Paul said, every knee's gonna bow, every tongue will confess. And what you are going to see is you will see Jesus fully God and fully man, two natures in one person. This is what, this is our, this is what I would call our Christology. Um, I, I tell people all the time, if, if you ever wonder where a church is at, if you ever wonder where a pastor's at, ask them what they believe about Jesus. I'm telling you what I believe about Jesus. I believe he was born of a virgin. Uh, there are a lot of churches out there that don't teach that. And I believe that he is fully God, fully man. And again, the reason this is so important and, and, and why I, I teach on this as, as much as possible is because if Jesus Christ was not God in human flesh, then Christmas may as well be a fable because Jesus is of no use to you and I any more than Santa Claus. As a matter of fact, I think you would probably get um, more from Santa Claus than Jesus. But Jesus is not just a man among men. He's not the first among equals. He's not even the greatest of the great. Jesus Christ is fully God. 
If the FBI had fingerprints of Jesus Christ, you would have the fingerprints of God because Jesus, Paul said, was the visible image of the invisible God. And again, what makes Christmas to me such a holy night, a night worth celebrating, is what John wrote in his gospel, chapter one, verse 14, and the word, which was God, became flesh and he made his dwelling, or he tabernacled amongst us. We, the disciples said, we have seen his glory. When did they see that? The Mount of Transfiguration. We have seen his glory. And they said, let us tell you, that was the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Second, Jesus changed the world because Jesus came to save us from our sins. Remember the words that the angel told Joseph in his dream there in Matthew 121 regarding uh, the baby that Mary was pregnant with. And the angel said to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This is why the angel of the Lord told Joseph in the dream to call the baby Jesus or Yeshua because the word Yeshua in the Greek literally means the Lord saves. And this is exactly what Jesus came to do to save us from our sins. And the apostle Paul talks about how Jesus would save us from our sins there in Philippians chapter two, verse eight. And he said, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And again, Jesus willingly, and I emphasize that, willingly left heaven and chose to come to earth as a human being. And he knew in making that choice that there would come a day and a time where he would die for the sins of the world. Jesus had a choice in coming and he knew in choosing to come as both a man and as a savior, it would require him at some point in his earthly ministry, his life, to die on the cross. And Jesus' love for you and I was greater than the death he would come later to bear. This is how much, again, we matter to God. The soul felt its worth. For God so loved the world... For God so loved you and I, it says that he sent his one and only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The soul felt its worth. And Jesus willingly came and he died a horrific death and it's through his death upon the cross that he accomplished salvation for anyone who believes. Three days after Jesus died, scripture says he rose again and in that resurrection, he was proving that his death was sufficient for the payment for mankind's sin. And he paved a way for you and I to be forgiven of our sins and to be restored back into a right relationship with our heavenly father. That is one of the greatest gifts God could ever give. And it's one of the greatest gifts mankind will ever receive. The Apostle John said in 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testify 
that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Again, Jesus Christ came into this world to be our Savior. So when Jesus was born, everything changed. And if you think about it, you'll only realize that that title, Savior, it not only tells us who he is, but it also tells us who we are because the only people who need a Savior are those who need to be saved. And there is a reason why the Lord Jesus came in human flesh, why he came as the heavenly son of an earthly mother. And that's why I started talking there at the beginning how Jesus was fully God and fully man. Because to be a savior, you have to be both human and divine. And by that I mean a savior must be human so that he can die for our sins. And he must be a perfect human. He must be a man without sin. But he also must be divine so that he doesn't die in his own sin. And that's exactly who Jesus was, both man and God. Man that he could die for our sins, but God so he would not die in his sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, for you and me that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus Christ came in his humanity, he was like us in every way, except he had no sin. And that's why the message of Christmas is joy to the world, because God has come as one of us, and he came to be like us, so that we might become righteous in our relationship with God. Jesus came fully, accepted and beloved by the Father, so that we too, through faith in him, we could become fully accepted and beloved by the Father when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The third way that Christmas changed the world, Jesus came to bring light. John 1, 4 says the word Jesus gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. This light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Jump down to verse nine. The one who is true light gives light to everyone and he was coming into the world. That tells us that Jesus is the light of creation and he brought this light to everyone. And he says nothing in all of creation can overcome that or extinguish it. And not only was it a physical light, Jesus also turns on the spiritual light, the light of consciousness. Listen again to what John chapter 1 verse 4 says, the life was the light of mankind. In verse 9 it says, that was the true light which lights every man who comes into the world. John is saying that Jesus is the light of consciousness and that every person, please hear this, every person who walks the face of the earth has a measure of this light within them. John is assuring us there is some measure of the light Jesus came to give in every person, that every one of us, No matter how dark or evil or wicked they may be, every one of us are born with some measure 
of this divine light. And I say this because this should be good news to any of us who have loved ones that are not saved. God has given to every person who has ever walked the face of this earth some revelation light about himself. And because of that, there is hope for every person to come to know the Lord as Savior. Paul says this in Romans 1.19. He said they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Every person has had the knowledge of God made obvious to them. And again, it just reinforces that whole idea that everybody has a little light of revelation and truth concerning God. Verse 20 continues, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities. Every one of us. Again, whether you're born again or not, I don't care how wicked, how evil, how far from God you may be. It says that God has clearly made known to us his invisible qualities. We can see it when we look at the earth and the sky, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for knowing God. There's a spiritual light, a divine revelation light that God has given and every one of us have received a measure of that glorious light. Oftentimes people will say to me, well, what about people who are on a, a tropical island all by themselves and they've never ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul explains that. He says they can simply look at the earth, the sky, the sea, and God has made it very obvious to them through those qualities that he exists. His eternal power, his divine nature exists. So he says they're without excuse. No one will be able to stand before God on judgment day and say, you never revealed yourself to me. Continuing with verse 21, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him. And that's not a God problem. That's a people problem. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Again, this means everybody is brought into this world with some revelation light, some understanding, some truth regarding the nature and the character of God. They have chose, the scripture says, to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. God has revealed that spiritual light through his creation, his existence, and his eternal power. And yet the Bible says that mankind has rejected that light of conscience and revelation. And he says as a, as a result of that, mankind is now living in moral darkness. And again, as you look around, we, we see evidence of that everywhere. There is less and less understanding of right and wrong, good and evil. As a matter of fact, you have people that are calling wrong right, people that are calling good evil, evil good. And the lines of morality are becoming more and more blurred. And as time marches forward, I'm just preparing you, the lines will continue to become blurred more and more. 
And Jesus came, among other things, he came to bring heaven's light into a world filled with darkness. Jesus came to be a witness to us, to declare to us that not only does God exist, but this is what he's like. When you look at me, Jesus says, you will see God the Father. And Jesus came to shine the light of God's glory into our hearts and into our lives. And our job as Christ's followers is to reflect that very light that lives within us. The light Jesus came to give. Again, we're living in, in a world, we're living in a day and age where people are kind of just walking around in this world in complete darkness. And oftentimes they'll kind of try to come off as though they are enlightened they can converse with you on a variety of topics. I mean, you can talk to them about sports and their face will light up. You can talk to them about the weather and their face will light up. But you introduce a spiritual subject or you talk to them about Jesus and you can kind of just see that veil of darkness. It just kind of covers their face. They don't have any idea what you're talking about. And in most cases, they don't even care to. Jesus is heaven's light. And John 1, 5 says that the darkness cannot extinguish it. The darkness cannot overcome that. Again, that means you can't turn it off. And just like you can't take Christ out of Christmas, the darkness can never extinguish the light Christ came to bring. Like it or not, Jesus is the center and the heart of Christmas and I believe he is turning on and he is ramping up the light in people if they'll just open up their hearts and their life to receive him as their savior. Salvation, again, it is a free gift from God and it is made available to whosoever. Where again, John three sixteen, for God so loved you and me that he gave his one and only begotten son that whosoever, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that everlasting life, that is salvation. And again, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. All that matters is that we repent of our sin, that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that we believe that he died and rose again from the dead. And the Bible says when we do that, when we make that confession, Jesus is Lord with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. That is what makes us right with God. The gift cannot be earned through good deeds or by simply being good. It's a matter of faith and faith is simply acting on what you believe according to God's word concerning salvation. If you've come here this morning and you're looking for a change in your life, if you've come seeking peace this morning, again, the world is filled with chaos and the world's only gonna get filled with more and more chaos. But if you're here this morning and you're truly looking for peace that is only found through a personal relationship with a loving, gracious God, and if you've come here this morning and you're looking for true peace and you're looking for true joy, then you're, here, you're at the right place. The Bible says that God is always willing. He is always ready to help us 
right where we are right now. I'm going to ask us just to stand this morning, and we're just going to pray a prayer of salvation together. I remember when I first became a believer, I prayed the prayer of salvation multiple times because I'll be honest with you, the very first time I prayed a prayer of salvation, I didn't feel a whole lot. And it was only as I continued to pray that prayer of salvation that I really began to receive more and more and more by faith what my mouth was professing. God was in the process of opening my eyes and my heart to understanding uh, the gift, the experience of salvation. And I remember praying the prayer of salvation. I probably did it like maybe 20, 25 times before I, I finally got to this place where I just kind of felt, mm, I got it, I got it. Um, I know. Uh, um, so again, oftentimes uh, I'll, I'll have people, you know, that they've maybe prayed a prayer of salvation 20 times. And for some reason, it's that 21st time that all of a sudden you kind of just feel like you, you've been able to acquire the faith that you need to believe that the prayer you prayed is true. And that God does love you, that God does forgive you, that, that he is for you, and that he has a, a plan and a purpose for your life. And that first plan and purpose is to bring you um, into salvation. So I'm just gonna, we're just going to pray this together, if this is a first time or if it's the 20th time. My prayer for you this morning is, as we pray this, that, that the words of your mouth will line up more and more with the faith uh, in your heart and, and that, that God is moving both of those into a, a deeper place for you this morning. So let's just pray this um, together. You may be like me. You might think, Pastor Jeff, mm, I've got this. That's okay. Let's just pray this together. Uh, we're praying it for those that may be here this morning that maybe have never prayed this prayer or maybe they've prayed it and this morning for some reason it, it, it just... It gets where it needs to go this morning. Let's pray this together. Dear Father God in heaven, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I acknowledge to you that I am a sinner and I am sorry for my sins and the life that I have lived apart from you. I need and ask for your forgiveness. I believe that your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, shed his precious blood on the cross at Calvary and died for my sins. And I am now willing to turn from my sin to follow you. You said in your word that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, we shall be saved. Right now I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord impart faith to my heart that I would believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. This very moment, I accept Jesus Christ as my own personal Savior, and according to his word and promise, right now I am saved. Thank you, Jesus, for your unlimited grace, which has saved me from my sins. I thank you, Jesus, that your grace never leads to license, but rather it always leads to repentance. Therefore, Lord Jesus, begin the work of transformation in my life so that I may bring glory and honor to you alone.
and not to myself. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and giving me eternal life. Amen. I would just say to this morning... Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.